You know, we want to look for a few minutes tonight at the cross. And it's easy um, when we go back and think about what happened some 2,000 years ago when Christ walked this earth. And we think of the triumphal entry and hear people are crying out Hosanna in the highest and palm branches laid before him and he's worshipped as a king as he comes in Jerusalem. And, and people are so fickle. A, a week later, the same throng that had cried out Hosanna in the highest is now crying out crucify him. And, and, and we say, you know, if, if I would have been there, I wouldn't have done that. But you know, the fact is, we would have. We're just as fickle. But, but it wasn't actually that angry crowd that put Christ on the cross. There was the religious leaders and because of their envy, because they didn't like the fact that people were worshiping him and leaving them, they, they, they sold him out for 30 pieces of silver. And, and yet, as, as, as ridiculous as that seems to us, that here they had prayed for the Messiah to come for years and years and years, and he finally comes, and, and now out of jealousy, they, they reject him. But, but, but the fact is, it wasn't really the religious leaders that put Christ on the cross either. And we, we think of the Roman soldiers and, and, and just all the, the, the things that they took Christ through in those, those hours leading up to the cross. And, and, and the Romans were experts in crucifixion. They, they knew how to bleed every last ounce of pain out of someone before they died. And though as merciless as they were, it, it wasn't really the Roman soldiers that put Christ on the cross either. You know who put Christ on the cross? I did. You did. You did. You did. We put Christ on the cross. It was our sin that did that. And it's so easy for us to, even our current culture, to look and say, oh, look at all the problems with our culture. Look at all the people making wrong choices. But the issue is not the culture. The issue is us. And, and we've got to come back to the cross tonight and acknowledge that we are the ones that need to change. That the world is waiting, you know, we're sitting here waiting for the world to come and get right with God, and the world's waiting for the church to come to get right with God. And until we get right, until we do what God says, until we humble ourselves and acknowledge our sin. So we want to look at that tonight. So I want you to go back some 2,000 years ago to the hill called Golgotha, the place of the skull. And remember that Jesus walked up those 650 yards on the Via Dolorosa to die on a cross, they did it for you. He did it for me. Let's go back to Calvary tonight. It was strangely dark. A thunderstorm was blowing in from the mountains, and the clouds hid the sun. Women took their children by the hand and hurried back to the city. People looked up at the sky and wondered. They stood blinking at flashes of lightning that looked like daggers of fire. The eyes, the fingers, the faces, the noise, everything focused on that center cross. From the crowd, words dipped in venom were hurled at him from snarling lips. They said things like, hey Jesus, if you really are the son of God, then get down off that cross. Hey carpenter, you said you could build the temple in three days. We have nails in your hands and plenty of wood behind your back, so go on. Build us something. Can't you save yourself? Oh, he could have saved himself, but then he couldn't have saved anyone else. He was a king who failed in the eyes of the world, 
in order to succeed in the eyes of God. Those were your sins he suffered for. And he has, with his own blood written across all the ledgers of heaven, that one word, forgiven. Bow your head for a moment and go to the Lord in a time of prayer. Would you just take a moment and thank him for what he did for you at the cross? Father, there's really no way that we can even begin to imagine what really took place at the cross with the best that Hollywood can try to depict. The, the physical trauma, the physical pain, as, as severe as it was, was certainly nothing compared with that cup of sin. Lord Jesus, the fact that you who knew no sin became our sin, that had never known what it was like to tell a lie or to be involved in dishonesty or immorality or profanity or lewdness or anything, and, and yet you became all that sin for us. And God just acknowledged that um, I, don't, I don't treat sin nearly as seriously as you do. I'm, I'm oftentimes more concerned about the sin of the world and sin of others than I'm about my own. And I pray that tonight you'd help each of us to take inventory and to get our focus off of everyone else and step inside that circle and say, God, purify my heart. Renew a right spirit within me. And we'll give you praise. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Take your prayer cards if you have them and fill them out and the team will collect them as they slip out to the aisle. Pass them the aisles, the team will collect them as they slip out. Take your little green book there if you have one and turn with me to page number 20, The Broken Life. If you have your Bible, we're gonna look at a couple of verses in Luke, the 20th chapter. I wanna give you a premise of what I wanna share with you here tonight. And it's simply this, you will not meet God in revival until you first meet him in brokenness. Everyone loves the joy side of revival, but, but nobody wants to go through the brokenness part. But the fact is that there are some things that you can't really bring into existence by making them. They have to be broken into existence. An omelet, for example, you don't really make an omelet, you break it into existence. An oak tree, you can't make an oak tree. An oak tree is broken into existence as that acorn goes in the ground and dies and comes apart. Then the, out of that brokenness comes the tree, comes life. And, and no one can really make revival happen. It has to be broken into existence. And the fact is, broken people are, are God's most cherished resource when it comes to revival. God, God looks for brokenness, and it's in brokenness that begins revival. In God's eyes, broken people are not to be discarded, they're to be treasured and held onto. And, and for there to be brokenness, there has to, have, there, there has to be loss. 
But out of that loss can come great gain. It may be the loss of your reputation or the loss of your health or status or relationships or money. When, when God wants to do a, a new thing, I believe he, he searches for a, a truly broken person. A broken person is a bereaved person. But there's a number of ways you can handle that bereavement. There, there always has to be some kind of death. Loss can be embraced in a, in a number of ways, and, and, and that loss sometimes has nothing to do with brokenness. When we lose something or someone precious to us, there's a number of ways we can respond. We can become bitter. Some of us have done that. We're not bereaved, we're, we're, we're bitter. And in and, and, and such situations, it just shows we've never really been broken by that loss. Sometimes we can get self-reliant. Sometimes loss brings us to a place where we just say, I can handle this. And, and that calamity only reveals we've never been really broken. Or we can get self-pitying always talking about all the ills of our life and whatever. And, and all of that reveals again is we've not dealt with brokenness God's way and let that loss bring us to brokenness. There's a prayer that A.W. Tozer wrote. I, I can't say that, that I'm living it. I, I, I wish I could. And every time I read it, I'm, I'm convicted again. He said if, if he could find just 300 people that would pray this prayer, it would turn the world upside down. And here is the prayer that, that, that's challenged me that he challenged. Oh God, I hereby give myself to you. I, I give my family, I give my business, I give all that I possess. Take all of it, Lord, and take me. I give myself in such measure that if it's necessary that I lose everything for your sake, let me lose it. I will not ask what the price is. I will ask only that I may be all that I ought to be as a follower and disciple of Jesus Christ my Lord. I, I, I want to live there, but most of the time I don't. And I want us to talk about that tonight. Elizabeth Elliot put it this way, if my life is broken when given to Jesus, it's because pieces will feed a multitude while a loaf will satisfy only a little lad. When God breaks us, when God brings us to brokenness, it's multiplied in our life. Now, let me give you a, a, a definition uh, as we walk through this. First of all, brokenness is not an emotion. Brokenness is an act of our will. Some of us think about brokenness, we think of, of crying and tears, but brokenness is a choice. It's an act of our will. Look with me at Luke chapter 20. Luke 20 is a I'm going to just take an illustration out of this passage, actually. And, and uh, Jesus here is, is, is talking, Luke chapter 20. Why don't you stand with me? Then we'll look at a couple of verses here, and then we'll sit down. Luke chapter 20. In Luke chapter 20, look down at verse number 17. Luke 20, 17. Jesus looked at them, and he said, What is this then that is written? And now he's going to quote from Psalm 118, Old Testament. He says, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. It was predicted that Christ was going to be rejected, that he is the cornerstone of our faith, but he was going to be a rock of offense. And, and here they had prayed for the Messiah all these years, and, and the Old Testament says you're going to reject the very cornerstone, the most important part of the arch, the most important part of the building. And then Jesus says this in verse 18. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken. I want to suggest that verse 18 gives you two options. Option one 
You fall in brokenness on the rock Christ Jesus. Option two, but on whomsoever it falls, it will grind him into powder and scatter him like dust. So here's the question for you tonight. Will you be broken or will you be crushed? You can be seated. Will you be broken or will you be crushed? I've brought my rock tonight. um, And and, um, if this was a real rock, and if this fell on you, you would not have life. It, It would crush you. But if you fall on this rock, you can fall in brokenness, and, and the choice is either to fall on the rock Christ Jesus or the rock will fall on you. He cares about us. He loves us. And, and he says, I want you to fall in brokenness on the rock Christ Jesus. Now, what does it mean to be broken? What does that look like? Let me define it this way. Brokenness is not an emotion. Brokenness is a humble, obedient response to the conviction of God's Spirit. Again, we think of brokenness with tears. You can have tears and not be broken, and you can be broken and not have tears. Nothing wrong with tears. I've met some people, though, they can cry at anything. Uh, one of the most influential men in my life, I, I've spent hours with him. I've never seen him cry one time, but he's one of the most broken men I've ever met. Brokenness is a humble, obedient response to the conviction of God's Spirit. And God wants us to fall in humility and obedience on the rock Christ Jesus. I grew up in Oregon, and um, my best friend in high school was named Dave. Dave and I um, were into backpacking and mountain climbing, and we'd go out and just spend all weekend sleeping on the stars and climbed all the major mountains there in the Cascades. And after we got out of high school, I stayed in Oregon, went to college, and he went down to Southern California. We kind of lost track of each other, and some years later, I joined Life Action. I was in a meeting in Indiana, and God just convicted me that there are some things that Dave and I had done growing up, some pranks we had pulled. We were president, vice president of the youth group. We double dated together, but, but we were just, we were not, I was, I was not a good example to Dave. I didn't lead him in godly things, and, and God just seemed to prompt me that I need to call Dave. He didn't help me either, but, but I need to call Dave and ask forgiveness for not being a good example of Christ to Dave. I hadn't seen Dave in years. His dad was a professor at Oregon State University where we went to high school in Corvallis, Oregon. And so I, I called information in Corvallis and, and got, I didn't know if his parents even still lived there. They did, got a phone number, called this house. His mom answered. I said, this is Steve Canfield. I'm, I'm looking for Dave. You know where I can get a hold of him? She said, he's right here. I said, wow, what are the chances? He got on the phone and so we, we talked for a while and kind of shared some, some small talk and talked about what had kind of happened to us over the years. And I, I, I said to Dave, I said, Dave, here's the deal. Uh, when we were in high school, I was not a good example to you and I've, I've, I'm growing in my life. God's changing me in some areas and I just need to ask you, would you please forgive me for not being a better Christian, for not leading you in helpful ways and he said, you forgive him. And then he said, Steve, did you hear it happen to me? I said, no. We got out of high school, we went down to California, and he got, he got in an Outward Bound program. It was an organization that led pack trips up in Sierra Nevadas in Southern California. He said, I got through college, and by the time I got through college, I was a leader in this organization. I was going to go into seminary after Bible college, but I thought, you know, I've, I've got a good job. He was single. He said, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna do this for a while. I'll get to seminary, you know, down the road. He said, about six months ago, some of the guys in our group wanted to climb Mount McKinley. 
And so we trained and uh, got ready, and, and, and we'd never climbed a mountain 14,000 feet. It was like thousands of feet higher than they'd ever gone before. And uh, he says, so we got going, and about part of the way up, some of the guys, they just couldn't make it. And we had trained, but it, it was hard. But there's one other guy who said, My, I've, I've come all this way, we're going to do this. And so he and I made it to the top. We, he, was, he was almost totally exhausted. We started back down, and an unexpected blizzard rolled in. He said, Steve, it was a whiteout. That's where the snow is blowing so hard, you can't even see your hand in front of your face. He said, Steve, we, we couldn't go anyplace. The guy could hardly move. And so my, my, my friend Dave, expert woodsman, he carved out a snow cave and pushed the guy in, pulled himself in, pulled the snow down. Night, night was coming. The snow continued. The next day, the storm blew over and rescuers went up the mountain to find Dave and this man. By the time they got there, David saved this guy's life. But because of the extreme temperatures, they've said to me, Steve, frostbite has set in. He said, I lost all my fingers and the front half of both of my feet to frostbite. He said, I'll never climb another mountain. I said, what, 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 are, you, what are you doing currently? So I, I just got out of the hospital. They made me some artificial feet. I'm, I'm learning to walk all over again. I've enrolled at Dallas Theological Seminary. I plan to start there in the fall. I remember I was in a pastor's office when I made that call in Indiana, and I, I remember hanging up the phone. I got down on my knees, and I just said, God, I'm listening. You don't have to shout. You don't have to yell. He said, that was a horrible thing for God to allow in Dave's life. That wasn't a horrible thing. You see, Dave could have gone the rest of his life, stood before God, and, and God would say, Dave, what'd you do with your life? He'd say, climb a lot of mountains. Yeah, what'd you do with Jesus? Climb a lot of mountains. You know, one day, God's going to give Dave some new hands and some new feet, and he's going to have something to offer in those hands. In Dave's life, the rock fell on him, and God got his attention. Now, the preference is for us to voluntarily fall in brokenness, in humble obedience, in honesty, in dealing with our sin God's way and admit our need and, and to voluntarily fall on the rock and, and be broken. But if we don't, if we're his child, he loves us so much, he's not gonna let us keep going in errant ways. He's gonna fall on us. So, so my, my, my plea with you tonight is simply, will you be crushed or will you be broken? Will you fall in humility and obedience, acknowledging your need before God and, and voluntarily surrender or will you wait for the rock to fall on you? Now, now why aren't we broken? Why, why is it that we live in a, in a culture of Christianity where there's so little brokenness? I think, number one, we have not seen the offensiveness of our sin. We don't see our sin as God sees it. Take your little green book there if you have it. I want you to turn to the back um, section on page number 60. Turn to page number 60. On page number 60 and 61 is a list of, of 54 of the most common sins in the Bible. It's not every sin in the Bible, but it's the one common to most of us. And, and we watched that video a few moments ago of Christ on the cross. Some of us, we, we, get, we get mad at the Roman soldiers, and we get mad at the fickle crowd, or we get mad at the religious leaders. But remember, it was you and I, it was me that put Christ on the cross. And, and we have not seen the offensiveness of our sin. I want you to do a little exercise. I want you to walk through, we're not going to do all, all of these, but I want you to walk through these with me. And there's two sides. 
One side are the things you're to put off, the things you agree with God. Listen, confession is just saying about your sin what God says about it. And 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I said last night, if you came tonight and walked through this process, you could go to bed tonight, nothing between you and God. And that is because you've confessed and say, God, yes, this is true of me. I don't want this, but I agree with you. I'm not going to say it's my brother, my sister, my husband, my wife. God, it's me. I'm the one. And if you confess, turn from your sin, then you are to replace it with the right thing. Repentance is a change of my mind that changes my direction. And so the other side of this page, the put on, are the things you replace it with. And so this is a process of God putting off the wrong and putting on the right. But it starts by agreeing where the wrong things have been in our life. So here's what I want you to do. We're going to go through this, and I want you to put a check mark out to the side of each one of these sins you've committed in the last 12 months. Now, now don't start yet. If you start without me, you have to do um, number 11. That's impatience. Okay, so, so just wait for me, all right? And, and if you've already confessed it, you can circle it. And what this is going to do, it's going to help us to identify the offensiveness of our sin. We say, well, at least I'm not doing what those guys are doing. Yeah, what, what are we doing? Where are we really in relationship to the holiness of God? So walk through it with me. Number one, lack of love. In the last 12 months, have you been guilty of not loving someone the way God wants you to love them? Your husband, your wife, your neighbors, your kids, your enemies, your bosses, the Word of God is anyone you've not loved the way God wanted you to love them the last 12 months. If so, put a check mark by number one. Number two, bitterness. Bitterness comes from being hurt. And all of us have gone through hurt. And, and when you get hurt, what is your response? It, it, have you responded in the grace of God every bitter, every circumstance, every, every hurt in the last 12 months? Have you responded instantly in the grace of God? Or have you gotten bitter, gotten resentful at any point in the last 12 months? If so, put a check mark by number two. Number three, unforgiving spirit. You say, Steve, I forgive everyone who asks me. That's not the point. It's forgiving them before they ask you. That guy cuts you off driving down the road. Did you forgive him or honk at him? Unforgiving spirit. A lady came to me one night. She said, Steve, she, she'd already, she, she had already had an unforgiving spirit and her husband hadn't even done anything yet. She said this to me. If my husband ever committed adultery against me, he would find his bags packed on the front doorstep. He hadn't done it yet. She was already choosing not to forgive. Number four, selfishness. You've been selfish in the last year, living for your time, your food, claiming your rights. You had any selfishness in the last 12 months? Number five, pride. If you don't think that's your problem, look who's right in the middle of it, spelling. P-R-I-D-E, I trouble. I want this, I want that, I want it my way. Have you, have you been proud at all? And by the way, shyness is just another form of pride. Has there been any pride in your heart in the last 12 months? Now, let me give you a little checkup. I've been doing this for 40 years. I've never met an adult who didn't have to check all five of the first five. Are you being honest? Number six, boasting, conceit. Number seven, stubbornness. I'm not gonna check this sin list. All right, sir, start right there. Number seven, you're stubborn. You look over the person next to you. If they've not checked anything yet, put a star by number seven for them right there. Nobody's gonna tell me to do this. I'm not gonna do that. You know what stubbornness? Stubbornness is idolatry. 
It's resisting God-ordained authority in your life. You have a, I was going to say a cold, snowy night. Do you ever have those around here? Cold, snowy nights? Well, let's say cold. Anyway, and, and so, you know, Tony stands up here and says, let's all gather down here at the front. You know, everybody's kind of scattered out. Let's all sit down in the front couple rows. And so the organ starts playing. Shall we gather at the river? Everyone moves down, all except for two guys in the back. I'm not moving. This is my chair. I bought this chair. And no one's going to tell me where to sit. And I wouldn't be a bit more spiritual in the front row than I'm in the back row. And that's certainly the truth. <laughs> Stubbornness. 1 Samuel 15, 23 says, stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. It's bowing down to the God of you. You've been stubborn the last 12 months? Disrespect for authority. Say, park there, brother. Talk to those teenagers. Tell those teenagers they should respect their authority. Yeah, they should. What about you? Last time you got pulled over by a police officer and he gave you a ticket, walked away, you rolled out the window, what'd you say? Man, that lousy cop. Why doesn't he go catch some criminals, leave us honest citizens alone? Disrespect, we live in a, in a tough culture with politicians. The Bible doesn't say that you're to pray for authorities because they're perfect. It says you pray for them because God has put them there. Some people go home from church, have roast preacher for lunch. I don't like the way the church is doing this. I don't like the music. I don't like the schedule. I don't like that. What is that? Disrespect for authority. And we wonder where our kids get it. They've just watched us. Number nine, rebellion. I used to race past that one. I thought, I'm a lot of things. I'm not a rebel. And, and, and I, my, my mental image, I went, to, I went to school in California for a while, and my mental image of a rebel is, is some guy in his Hell's Angel jacket, you know, with his uh, earring in his ear and his long hair cruising down Sunset Strip on his motorcycle. That's kind of my mental image of a rebel. You know what rebellion is? It's reserving the right to make the final decisions about your life. Well, I heard that. I thought, I'm a rebel. I, I've made decisions. I don't talk to God about it. And rebellion is reserving the right to make decisions in your life. And you say you surrender all. When you make decisions apart from God, you're rebelling against him. And rebellion, it says in verse 23 of 1 Samuel 15, is as the sin of witchcraft. We, we wouldn't bring occult things into our home, occult movies, occult. But, but some of us are rebelling, and it's the sin equal to witchcraft. Number 10, disobedience. The only way you can pass that one is to say you've obeyed every command in the Word of God for the last 12 months. If you don't check that one, make sure you check lying when we come to that one. Come to that one. Number 11, impatience. Have you accepted everything in the last 12 months is coming from God for your good? Traffic lines, health problems. Number 12, ungratefulness, covetousness. Complaining. Complaining? You see, you put anything on this list. Do you know how serious God takes sin? It was the little sin of complaining that so angered the God of heaven, he sent an entire nation out in the wilderness, had them wander for 40 years, and killed off the entire adult population. You know why? They complained against God's man. They murmured and complained. God takes sin seriously. Do you? Jealousy, strife, contention, retaliation, anger, easily irritated, hatred, gossip, critical spirit, lying. I'm not going to go through all these. But if you look at the last one, number 54, murder. So at least I don't have to check that one. Remember what we talked about a couple nights ago. The Bible says if you hold hatred in your heart, there's very few that could pass murder without checking it. 
Because there are people, you say, I just wish they were dead. I wish I never saw them again. You've murdered them in your heart. Now, here's the point. We aren't broken because we don't take these things seriously. Tonight, before you go to bed, if you, or tomorrow morning as you get up and spend your time with God, take a few of these and just walk through them and say, God, is this me? And if he shows you those areas, agree with him, confess, take your sins seriously. It, it is these things that put Christ on the cross just as much as murder and, and adultery and child molestation and all the things we think are so bad. Yeah, those are bad. But the sin that put Christ on the cross is in my heart, in your heart. And take that seriously. We've not seen the offensiveness of sin. And if you'll take it seriously and confess what God shows you, he is faithful and just to forgive. And then you can add the right things to your life. I think we aren't broken because we've compared ourselves to a lower standard. We, we look at other people and say, well, compared to that church, we're pretty good. Compared to that family. If I wanted to impress you with what a great physical specimen I am, I'm not going to go down to the local gym and have some, you know, muscle-bound bodybuilder stand up next to me. I'm going to find some drunk, inebriated wino and hold that guy up next to me. I might win that one. I'm going to find someone worse off than me. And rather than comparing ourselves to the standard of holiness in this book, we compare ourselves to other people. Don't compare yourself. To, and, and here's another reason. We don't have many examples of brokenness. I was in a church in Arlington, Texas, a church of about 1,000 at a Christian school of 400. I was doing chapel one day. And I asked the, the students, I said, well, what was Jesus like? And, and I said, let's, let's make a list of, of the qualities of Christ as you know them. And so we made a list of power and, you know, grace and mercy and love and, and all these, and about 15 qualities. And I had them write them down. I said, I want you to write up to the side the name of someone who you know embodies that quality. Had them turn them into me. And they had names out, you know, power, you know, love, parents, you know, mom, dad, pastor, whatever. But not one of these students, out of, out of all 400, not one wrote down a name out to the side of the quality of humility and brokenness. They couldn't think of one church member in a thousand one staff, 12 staff members on this church staff, one teacher, one parent, not one person they knew whose life was characterized by humble brokenness. If I had the students in your church make a list of all the humble, broken people they know, would your name be there? We don't have many examples of brokenness. I was in a church where one of our team members' dad came and I was sharing some of these things and he said, Steve, if you came to my church, great big guy, six feet plus and just towered over me. He said, if you came to my church and, and you were to ask the people in my church, does Brother Joe know the Bible? They would say, Brother Joe knows the Bible. If anybody has a question about the Bible, they come talk to Brother Joe. Then he, then he bowed his head. He said, but if you were to ask the people in my church, is Brother Joe broken? They'd say no. How about you? Have you fallen in brokenness, in humble obedience, acknowledging your sin? Or are you waiting for the rock to fall on you? Now, there's one biblical example of brokenness. Turn back a few pages from Luke 20 to Luke 15. Luke 15 it's a very familiar passage, the lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son. 
And, and you know the story of the prodigal son, probably other than the crucifixion, the story of Christ, probably the most famous story in the Bible is the one of the prodigal son. In verse 11, man has two sons. One says, I want my inheritance now. The father gives it to him. He leaves, goes, spends all of his money, wastes his money in riotous living. A famine comes. All of his friends that were around when he had money are gone tries to find a job. The only job he can get is the one that is an ultimate insult for a Jewish boy. He's feeding the pigs. And it says in verse 16, he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods of swine reading and no one's giving him anything. The prodigal son came to a point where the rock fell on him. Now, the steps to brokenness, the steps to getting back where you need to be are the same whether the rock falls on you or you fall on the rock. But the, the preferred method is for you to fall on the rock. But the steps are the same. What, what, is, what did he do? First of all, verse 17, he came to his senses. He got honest about his life. He got honest about the fact that, that he was not what he needed to be. He's sitting in a pig pen he got on, he came to himself, it says. Have you come to the reality of your need? Have you come to the reality of your brokenness that you need to be broken? If not, then go back to that list and acknowledge that you need him. Now, there's, there's one more list I want you to look at. Turn back again to the back of your book. And if you turn back to a page after the one you just looked at, or right before, rather, page 58. If you want to know where you're at, whether you're broken or not, then here's another exercise you can take. Do this tomorrow. We're not going to meet tomorrow night. Maybe sometime tomorrow you can do this. Or maybe it's not if you get really burdened for this. The difference between a proud person and a broken person. Look at a couple of them. Number one, proud people focus on the failures of others. But broken people are overwhelmed with a sense of their own spiritual need. Circle which one of those best describes you, those two statements. Which one of those is the most true of you? Look at number, look at number three. Proud people are self-righteous and look down on others. Broken people esteem all others better than themselves. Do you realize that you're not broken? That's the point. Look at number five. Proud people have to prove that they are right, but broken people... Yield their right to be right. Are you the guy that always has to prove you're right? We were, my wife and I had a thing. When, when, when our kids were young, we lived in Michigan, and uh, we had three little boys, and we get ready to go someplace, and Debbie would say to the boys, put your coat on, we don't want to catch a cold. Now, now, I was a science minor in college, so I would say to her, honey, you don't catch a cold by not wearing a coat. Okay? You catch a cold because there's germs, virus, bacteria that come. And so I don't mind the boys wearing coats, but don't tell them they're going to catch a cold because that, it's not scientifically correct. Okay? So that just kind of meant nothing to her. Uh, and, and so, because she understands that. And so we we're go someplace, and she'd say, okay, boys, put your coat on, don't catch a cold. I said, honey, we talked about this. I'd show her medical books. I'd have doctors come talk to her. And, and still, I said, honey, why do you say that? She said, because that's what my mom said. Oh, mom knows everything, right? And so, so and, and, and it, it, the deal was, it was just, it was grinding on me because I was right. And one day it was like, God said to me, Steve, what's the big deal? I said, I'm right. And God said, so what? The issue was, I just wanted to make sure that everyone knew I was right. It was just because of pride. And so, you know, now, the deal is, if Debbie's cold, we all wear coats. It's, it's easier that way, you know? <laughs> but, but, but the problem is, here's the deal. Let's say you as a husband and wife, you, you get in this fight, okay? It's late at night, you're in this big fight, 
And as a husband, you're going to make sure that your wife knows that you're right. You're going to win this fight. Here's the deal, men. If you win the fight, you go to bed with a loser. Think about that for a minute. Okay. <laughs> it's much better to lose the fight. I want to say, okay, anyway. Um, proud people. Look down. Look at, look at number 19. Proud people are concerned about being respectable. Broken people about being real. Look at number 20. Proud people find it difficult to share their spiritual need with others. We did that the other night, and, and that, was, that was just hard for some of us. A broken person is willing to be open and transparent with, their, with others as God directs. Look down at the last two. Number 29, proud people don't think they have anything to repent of, but a broken person realizes they need a continual heart attitude of repentance. Look at the last one. Proud people don't think they need revival, but they're sure everybody else does. They're not here tonight. They don't need this. But a broken person continually senses their need for a fresh encounter with God and a fresh filling of the Spirit. Now back to Luke. So here the prodigal son, he comes to himself. He gets honest. He's sitting there and he said, how many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread and I'm dying here of hunger? So, so what does he do? Look at verse 18. He says this. He chose to obey. He said, I will arise. Brokenness is not an emotion. Brokenness is a choice. He wasn't sitting in a service. There weren't, there weren't uh, 50, um, just turn that off. There, there weren't 50 verses of just as I am. He's sitting in a pig pen and he says, I'm gonna get up. Brokenness is a choice. It's a choice to fall on the rock, Christ Jesus, to humble yourself, to say yes. Those things on those lists, that's true of me. I'm, I'm proud, I'm stubborn. And to be honest enough to admit that. He says, I'm gonna go back. I'm gonna say to my dad, dad, I've sinned against heaven in your sight. And then look at, in verse 18, I'll, I'll go to him and I'll confess. I, I choose to get up and I choose to go back and I choose to say to him, I was wrong. Brokenness brings about confession and repentance. I'm, I'm gonna agree. He didn't go back and say, Dad, you're sure a crummy father. Why'd you give me all that money? That's what we do. We find someone else to blame. He said, he said it's me. I've sinned against heaven. I've sinned in your sight. I, I, and, and here is the key, I believe. Here, here is the key to, to this whole thing of brokenness. It's the first part of verse 19. Here's what he says. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. I think that's the key to brokenness. I, I, I'm not worthy. Humility is an act of your will where you humble yourself and say, God, I, I'm not willing. And he said to his, his, his dad, if you could just let me be a hired servant, it'd be more than I would deserve. But we're unwilling to fall on the rock and admit that we're proud and stubborn and selfish and all those things on that list. And until you fall in brokenness, you'll not meet God in revival until you first meet him in brokenness. So you acknowledge your sin. Listen, you don't have to go around moping about it. But here's the deal. God is serious about sin. He's just as serious about forgiveness. But forgiveness comes when we repent, when we agree with him and say, yes, God, that is me. And we take that seriously. And we say, I'm going to put off those wrong things. I'm going to put on the right things. But we don't want to do that. We choose rather to defend ourselves. Openness before man is genuine proof of sincerity before God. There, there's no brokenness where there's no openness. 
And what we've tried to do is make this all just kind of a, a silent thing. When was the last time you, didn't, you weren't concerned about anyone else around you? You just said, God, I need you to change my heart, to change my life. And you cried out to him in humility and brokenness, falling on the rock, Christ Jesus. We just don't do that in our culture. I want to challenge you before you go to bed tonight to walk through that list of those 50-some sins and one by one go through and say, God, I, the ones you have to check and say, God, this is me. I agree with you. And then you can, then you can circle it. If, if you confess, he's faithful and just to forgive. If you will take it seriously, you can go to bed tonight, nothing between you and God. But it starts by us seeing the offensiveness of our sin. We don't, we don't anguish over our sin anymore. We just let it go flippantly by. And here's how we're going to close tonight. I want to show you a little video. It's a short one of David Wilkerson. Some of you may know him from the cross and the switchblade. He is a pastor in New York. He just passed away not too long ago. And I want you to do this. You've been such a, a great group, and every night you've been so um, cooperative. And, and, but I want to ask just tonight that when we leave the service, you don't talk to anybody. I, I, you've been so fellowshipping, and that's great. But just for tonight, because here's the deal. We'll walk through a thing like this, and we'll look at those sins, and we'll say, yeah, I had to check 10. How many did you have to 10? Ha, ha, ha. And we'll miss what God wants, wants to say to us. And, and there may be some things that God's convicting some folks about, and, and we'll pass it off because we'll get into the conversation. So, so just for tonight, if you don't have children, then you can just slip out. If you have children, just as quiet as you can get them. You may want to go home and, and get along with God for a few minutes and walk through this little exercise of those 54 things. After you see this little short clip, you may want to come down here to the altar and take a few moments and get with God. Take a few moments after you see this little clip and at least go through the first few on that list. Turn, turn back to that page where those 54 sins are. And, and maybe take some time for a few of them and just say, God, I agree with you about, about these first five. And here's the specifics of these. I confess this to you. I, I want that to change. I want to add these right things back into my life. And if you will take it seriously, God takes sin seriously. So seriously, he put his son on a cross. But he also takes forgiveness seriously. So seriously, he put his son on a cross. And if you will seriously in anguish fall in brokenness on the rock Christ Jesus, then you can experience the joy side of revival. But it comes out of brokenness. You will not meet God in revival until you first meet him in brokenness.